We turn then in God's Word this morning to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. And if you remember, the setting that uh, we set last Lord's Day is the challenge to Jesus' authority that comes up at the end of the 11th chapter. Tell us by whose authority you do these things. Jesus reverses it on them and asks about, uh, well, where did John get his from? And puts them in a quandary of answering. So they respond, well, we don't know. So Jesus then says, I won't tell you then either by where my authority derives. But he goes on then to tell the parable. And the parable clearly reveals where his authority is from. So that when we come to the end of this, they seek a way to arrest him because they know he's speaking about them. He is stating this, and this is being given to these religious leaders in the temple itself. So they're in the temple courtyard, probably at Solomon's porch, which was the common place of teaching in that day by the various rabbis. So th that's the setting. So we're at the temple, we're on the Solomon's porch. Jesus is telling a parable. Crowd is there, all sorts of listeners, but it's directed at the religious leaders. Let's hear then God's word. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. for They perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him. And went away. Let's far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow our heads in prayer and ask for God's blessing upon it. Shall we pray? Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, once again we thank you for your word. And we ask your blessing on your, your word as it was read this morning. And also, Father, that you will be with Pastor Bob as he brings the message. And uh, expounds on this word. Open our hearts and our minds, Father. Um, and if there's anyone in the hearing of this word that does not have Christ as his cornerstone... Work in their hearts, dear Father, and we ask your blessing on this day. In the precious name of our Savior, when we pray, amen. And amen. If you have your sermon notes out, we have five points this morning. First of all, 
that this parable shows to us God's care. Secondly, that this parable shows to us God's kindness. Thirdly, that it shows us God's love. Fourthly, it illustrates to us God's judgment. Fifthly, it shows us God's victory. His care, His kindness, His love, His judgment, and His victory. As we look at God's care, it's simply to remind you of where we stopped last Lord's Day. We dealt with verse 1, the man who planted a vineyard, and then all the care that he takes. He, he, we mentioned he put the fence around it, he dug a pit, built a tower, he planted the vineyard. This was a picture of the care of a farmer for his vineyard, his love, his passion for that vineyard. The time, the effort, the energy, the work that the farmer put into that vineyard. It's clearly illustrated to us. We went into Isaiah chapter 5, which is the song about the vineyard. And in that Isaiah chapter 5, we see a very clear comparison to the fact that Israel is the vineyard. That's what Jesus is saying. The man who plants the vineyard is God. It's God who is tenderly caring for his people, for his people Israel. He gave them the vineyard. He took care of it. He's been watching over. He's been caring for it. He planted Israel. But it is also a picture for us of the church. Jesus tells us in John chapter 15 that he is the vine and we are the branches. It is the carry through of this illustration. And as they were there in that temple square, I noted to you there's all sorts of things for the people to look at, even at the front of that temple, this elaborate grapevine that decorated it in gold leaf, the coins in their pockets from the Maccabean revolt that carried with it, the emblem of the grapevine, a reminder that they were God's people, a reminder that we are God's people. And God's special love and God's special care. And there is a fence. This, this is where God sets his love. He loves the gates of Zion. In other words, he loves the church. This is what salvation is all about. It's about the church. And I made mention last Lord's Day that outside of the church there is no salvation. You might have thought, well, I, don't know, I don't know about that. The Belgic Confession, Article 28, states, We believe since this holy congregation is an assembly of those who are saved, and outside of it there is no salvation, that no person of whatsoever state or condition he may be ought to withdraw from it, content to be by himself, but that all men are in duty bound to join and unite themselves with it, maintaining the unity of the church, submitting themselves to the doctrine and discipline thereof, bowing their necks under the yoke of Jesus Christ, and as mutual members of the same body, serving to the edification of the brethren according to the talents God has given to them. 
the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, meaning it's not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children, and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Now, the Westminster adds no ordinary possibility of salvation because the Westminster is taking into consideration those who may die upon their deathbed, that deathbed conversion. It also takes in mind those who may be elect infants who die in infancy or in the womb. And it also takes in mind those who through and because of the providences of God in this life are incapable mentally to make that decision to join the church of Jesus Christ. But in essence, it's saying God's built a fence and you need to be in the vineyard. Outside of that, there is no vineyard of God. And so there, there, there is this emphasis, God's love, God's care, this table is about God's love for the church. God sent His Son to die for the church. The church. You and I, members of that body of Christ. That's for whom this table is. And so we are reminded of God's care. But also, look at God's kindness in this passage. And the kindness of God is exemplified for us in verse 2. He sent a servant. Right? He sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. What did they do? They took him and beat him. Sent him away empty-handed. Now, where do you suppose that servant went? He goes back to the owner of the vineyard. Shows up, beaten up, bruises, blood. Empty-handed. What happened? What happened to you? Well, I, I went to the tenants and they beat me up. And Well, did they give you any of the produce? No, none of, none of the produce of the vineyard. Now, what does the owner of the vineyard do? What does God do? Verse 4. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Where do you suppose that servant went? He goes back again, right? Reports it again. What does the owner do? And he sent another, verse 5. And him they killed. And so with many others. Oh, the kindness of God. Why? Because would it not be right in a sense, just when the first servant returned to have that owner come with a band of hired soldiers and destroy those tenants for their open rebellion against him. Instead, what does the owner do? Over and over and over again, he shows to them kindness, patience, long-suffering. Jesus is stating this to the religious leaders. 
And what he's stating is this. Israel has been in open rebellion against God. And God has repeatedly sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And how do the religious leaders, the priests, the teachers, the elders of the people usually respond to these prophets? They strike them, slap them across the face, put them into cisterns. Some they kill, some they destroy in that manner. But God patiently, hundreds and hundreds of years, God patiently sends prophet after prophet after prophet. God sent them John the Baptist. They still don't listen. See, the history of Israel, even though they are the vineyard of God, has been a rejection of God, has been a turning away from God, has been an open rebellion against God. You say, oh, but the owner in the parable, all he wants is some of the fruit. He doesn't demand it all. They get some of it. Why didn't, why didn't they just give to him what was due? Because they were more concerned about their own greed. Hmm. Remember the context in which this parable is taught. What had Jesus just done the day before? He had just cleared the temple. What was that signifying? The greed of the religious leaders. They were unwilling to part with anything. They wanted it all. None for the glory of God. None for the honor of God. None for the praise of the king. No, they're going to do keep it all. It's all for them. And Jesus is pointing out, they, like the tenants in the parable, are refusing to hear the messengers of God. And they've done this for years and years and years. This stiff-necked people that comes to us does it not today as the church falling into that vineyard loved of God cared for by God but the question is how many of us are really listening to God how many of us are really listening to that which God says the truth that God conveys the word that God brings the message that God delivers how often do we not care? We don't even look. We don't read it. We don't study it. We don't pay any attention to it. We have no desire to learn and to grow. We don't want to know what the owner is desiring from us. We just want to be tenants. We just want to be in the vineyard. We just want to have it, but we don't want the responsibility that comes with it. And so we, although we don't kill the messengers often. We have our own ways of dealing with this, don't we? We have our own subtle ways. I'm just not going to show up anymore. I'm just not going to come. I'm not going to give anymore. I'm not going to come to Sunday night anymore. I'm not going to go to Bible studies anymore. I, I don't want to listen anymore. I want to alienate myself. I want to withdraw. I want to pull away. Oh, I want to be considered in 
but I'm not going to listen to what the owner of the vineyard has to say. So lest we point the finger too strongly at these religious leaders, we probably need to search our own hearts, our own souls. Are we guilty of this as well? The rebellion that these religious leaders were involved in? Are we guilty of that greed? Unwilling to give to that which the Lord commands us to give? Are we unwilling to share with that which God requires of us? He is so merciful. He is so patient. He is so long-suffering. Thirdly, this parable demonstrates God's love. Pick it up with me, verse 6. He had still one other. A beloved son. He sent his son. The emphasis falls on the fact that this is his only son. This is what we believe. This is what we confess, right? In the Apostles' Creed, in the, the uh, Nicene Creed that we stated this morning. This is his only son. Jesus is now speaking of himself. He is the only son of the Father. Here is this owner. Time and time again, he sent messengers and they refuse to listen. They've, they've snubbed their nose in open rebellion. I'll send my son. Certainly, they'll listen to him. Remember the question that began this? Whose authority? Well, here it is. It's the authority of the heir. It's the authority of the son. He comes in the full authority of the Father. He has just answered their question. By whose authority do you do these things? Right? This is my Father's house, but you've made it a den of thieves. I am the Son. I am the heir. I'm the one who comes, not as the messenger bringing the authority, bringing the message, announcing the message of the owner. I am the one who comes in the very name of the owner. I am the one who comes in the very name of God. I am. I am. The Father and I are one. He sends His Son. But look at the descriptive word. His beloved son. At his baptism, the voice speaks. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the voice speaks. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved. In the Greek, this is agape toss. It is a verbal adjective, meaning it's active. This is an active love of the Father. 
It's not passive. It's not cerebral. It's not just head love. It is an active love. The father is actively loving the son. The owner sends his son. He loves his son actively. He cares for his son. And yet, they kill him. Toss him out of the vineyard. So clearly a picture of that which was going to happen in just a few days from this. What were they going to do? What were those tenants going to do? What were those religious leaders going to do? They were going to take the son, the beloved son. They were going to take him, and they were going to take him outside of Zion. They were going to take him outside of Jerusalem. They were going to take him outside of the walls. They were going to take him outside of the vineyard, and they were going to nail him to a cross. They were going to shout, crucify him. They wanted nothing to do. They want to kill the son so they can lay claim to it all. He sent his beloved. How descriptive that word is. How intense. How personal is that father's love. I think sometimes when we reflect upon the love of God for Christ, I think we miss the passion, the intensity. He didn't just send them a messenger. He doesn't just send somebody to die on a cross. He sends his beloved son. For God so loved the world that he gave us his one, his own son. So that ever, whoever believes on him may have life eternal. But whoever rejects that faces only condemnation and judgment. Do you understand why now? Because it's out of his love that he gave us this son. And to reject that love, to reject the passion of God for Christ, is that which God cannot, will not forgive. He will not pardon it. He will not turn it away. His wrath. For those who reject the passion of His love for His Son. For you see, when we reject Christ, that's what we're doing. We're rejecting the passionate love of the Father for the Son. We're saying, ah, it was no big deal. Ah, it doesn't matter. It, I don't care. I could care less. Oh, I want all the benefits of the vineyard, but I don't want to be in Christ. 
I don't want to submit to the Father. I want to be my own authority. I want to be in control. I want to decide. I don't want elders telling me when I have to go to church and when I don't. I don't want elders telling me about the importance of marriage. I don't want elders digging into my spiritual life. I don't want that. I'm going to live my own life. He who rejects the Father's love in Christ faces nothing but the wrath of God. Those who embrace that love, those who look at the beauty, the passion of the Father for the Son and realize the cost, the cost of their salvation, the cost of their atonement, the cost of their cleansing, shall have eternal life. That's why Jesus, you see, comes to verse 9 and says, asks the question, so what's the owner of the vineyard going to do? If you, can, if you kill the son, if you effectively turn away from the love of the father, if you turn away from Christ, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So we have a question and we have an answer. In a few days, God was going to demonstrate that. This selective group of religious leaders, the high priest in control of the religious affairs, the high priest who's the only one, the only one who can enter in to that holy of holies. Oh, what a holy man he must be, right? God's going to take that veil and he's going to rip it open and he's going to say, no, not just for you. Not just for you. In 70 A.D., this whole structure of this temple is going to be laid waste. If I ask you a question today, a simple question, today, in the church of Jesus Christ, do you suppose there are more Gentiles or Jews? There are more Gentiles. Why? He's going to give it to others. He's going to give it to others. Well, be careful. I didn't say there aren't Jews that are Christians who are in. But by and large, the church is Gentile. What's the owner of the vineyard going to do? He's going to come. He's going to destroy this all. Like he rent a veil. Like he laid flat a temple. And 
And the word of the Lord goes forth. So that we see the gathering in heaven, right? Of men from all tribes, of all nationalities, of all tongues. Gathered for the wedding feast of the Lamb. He will come and he will destroy the tenants. John 3, 16, 17, and 18. But notice the announcement of victory. Have you not read the scripture? Here's where we go back to Psalm 118. Interesting. Psalm 118 also includes what? Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Where did we hear that? Oh, that was Sunday, right? That was Sunday at the triumphal entry. See, the whole thing is in context. It's not like, oh, let me tell you a story a minute. Let me tell you this parable. No, he's addressing the whole situation of that which has happened. By whose authority do you do these things? How do you, how do you get off Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, pretending you're the Savior? How? Because I am the stone that the builders rejected. The stone that has become the capstone. And there he is standing at the temple. And you can probably imagine he could have, they, they could have turned around and looked at the mammoth stones that were there for the foundations. The stones that were used to create the structure. And you can well think that there had been stones that had been tossed aside, Right? He was despised and rejected a man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is Christ. They rejected him. But yet, it has become the keystone. It has become this cornerstone. It has become the link, the vital stone that Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says that Christ is that chief cornerstone and it's in Him, in Him, that the whole building, the whole structure, the whole of the church is held together. Isn't it marvelous in our eyes? What a marvelous thing to think of this love of God for His Son, for us. That the one that was rejected, the one that suffered, the one that died, the one whose body and blood is given. The one who hangs upon an accursed cross. The one who cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one who has risen. The one who is now the cornerstone of the church. The one who is now the head of the body. 
Is that a marvelous thing to you? Know what it means to marvel? It means to stand with your mouth open. To consider the magnitude of that which is happening. And it is marvelous. Marvelous grace. Marvelous love. Marvelous gift. Marvelous. For it was given for sinners like you and I. Father, as we come to this table, as we reflect upon your love for Christ and Christ's love for us, your love for us, Father, May we marvel at the greatness of your love. At Christ, the cornerstone. In his name, God's people say, Amen.